Well, if you're like me, uh, you were glad to get up this morning and know that we survived the great blizzard of 2022 that struck Brunswick County with a vengeance for two hours. No, if you're like me, you were outside taking pictures and videos and sending them to family because you've been telling them, you know, we never get snow in Brunswick County. It swept past. Stayed a few minutes and then then off it went. Because that's kind of what storms do. Whether they're small snowstorms or they're great big hurricanes, uh, one thing is for certain the storms will come and another thing is for certain the storms will go. And and we are sometimes left to clean up in the aftermath and then sometimes we barely know the difference that the storm was ever here. But that's the nature of storms and that's the nature of life. Uh, Today might be easy going for you. Tomorrow a new storm might breeze in. It might blow past uh, without ever leaving evidence, but it might linger and you might be left to clean up in the aftermath. But whatever happens, you know that your God is with you. We're in a message series, Don't Be Afraid, How God's Greatest Promise Strengthens Your Faith. And we've seen that God's greatest promise in Scripture, which we often take for granted, is that God is with you. If you follow Christ, if you're a believer, if you put your faith and trust in Him, You can know that God is with you. God never leaves you, abandons you, or forsakes you. And it's astounding how many times in the Bible God reminds us of this when he says, do not be afraid, I am with you. Do not be afraid, this is why, I am with you. We'll see that again in a few minutes this morning. We opened this series with Psalm 23. We talked about four pillars built on a foundation of God's presence, his promise of his presence in our lives. And we've unpacked those pillars as we've gone along. Uh, We've talked about, you know, we don't need to be afraid because God provides for us. God sustains us. Last week we saw that God leads us into the future. God goes before us and he knows our future and he provides for us and uh, has purpose for us. And this morning we're going to look at the third one, that God helps us. In our time of need, the Bible teaches that God is always with us and he is there to help us. He knows what we need, but he's always with us and he helps us in our crises and our circumstances and our bad situations. The Bible teaches that he is our refuge and our strength. The Bible teaches that he is our ever-present help in time of trouble. And there are lots of times of trouble in our lives. So this morning we'll look more closely that God is our help. He is always with us. We're all watching the crisis in the Ukraine as Russia masses on the border of the Ukraine. Uh, And it was a reminder, Kim and I were talking about this this week, uh, talking about the people in Ukraine. I was there in 1995, many of you know that, taught in a pastor's conference for a couple of weeks there, got to know some of the people, strong, resilient, the believers in Christ, remarkably strong in their faith. Because they've lived through what a lot of of us haven't lived through, and that's official persecution from the government. Official persecution. When we were there in 1995, uh, we had a big baptism outside, and my translator mentioned to me, we always do it outside in a public park because during the occupation, we were never permitted to baptize or preach outside. So now that they can, they're outside. So, So you get a feel for the people. They're boisterous, they're faithful, they're outgoing. Uh, very East European in every way. And we got to know, the, the at that time, the head of the Baptist Union, a man named Misha, we stayed in his house. And he didn't speak a whole lot of English, so, and his wife didn't speak any. So when we were around, we tried to make sure a translator was there 
uh, especially during the daytime. Well, we did the two weeks of the pastor's conference, and we were ready to depart, me and a pastor friend of mine and two other pastors that had joined us while we were there. And uh, we loaded up, and Misha and the translator took us to the airport. Uh, not a very large airport, but of course a, a pretty big airport for, them, for there. And uh, we got through all the first stages. And back then, there wasn't as much security as there is now. But still, we had to go through customs. Now, I learned while I was there, anytime I started to engage the public, the translators would usually say, no, don't do that. Let us do the talking for you. Because uh, there were hazards, there were concerns along the way. And that day, we, we found out another reason why. We made our way through the line. We have our luggage. We're heading toward customs. And Misha stopped us. And through the translator, he said, you stay here. Let me talk to the customs agent. So we paused and we watched him go just, just a few yards ahead. And there was a, a woman there, a customs agent. He stepped up to her and they started having this conversation. And we were close enough by, we could hear what that they were talking, didn't understand what they were saying, but that they were talking. And the more they talked, the louder they got. And pretty soon, Misha, who was a big guy anyway, was overbearing. He was yelling at this customs agent who we saw began to wilt in front of him. And finally, she just nodded and Misha marched toward us. And I looked at the translator. I said, what in the world was that about? And the translator said, she wanted American money or she was not going to let you through. You were going to have to pay your way through. But see, Misha knew that. That's why he went before us, stood his ground on our behalf, and the translator said, Misha told her, these are American pastors. You are being disrespectful and you're embarrassing me and they are going through customs without paying. And she finally relented and we got to come home. Now and then you need someone who understands the situation better than you do to step into the gap, to be your advocate, to be your helper, to be your comforter, your counselor. That's why the Bible tells us over and over and over, God is our advocate, He's our comforter, He's our counselor. He is our helper in times of need. All of those words refer to the same thing, that God steps in to help you in real time when you need His help. You'll remember in Psalm 23 and verse 4, King David says, Even when I go through the darkest valley, I fear no danger, for you are with me, your rod and your staff. They comfort me. You go with me. You walk with me. But notice David assumed dark valleys. He didn't assume because he was in a relationship with his God that everything would go great all the time, that he would never have problems in his life. Instead, he assumed there would be valleys and there would be mountains, there would be hills, there would be smooth sailings, there would be meadows. All of those times, he says, I know that God is with me, but I'm especially comforted when he walks with me. Through those valleys. If you have your Bible with you this morning, pick, up, pick it up and find with me Isaiah chapter 41, another Old Testament passage, Isaiah chapter 41, where God reminds us again that He is always with us. He is our helper in times of trouble. He walks with us and He stays with us. And it could be you this morning or in a crisis, a, a, a bad circumstances, a storm. Now that storm may be passing quickly, leaving little residue behind, or you may be in the middle of this storm for quite some time, and you know afterward you're going to have to clean up the aftermath. But you can know that your God is with you. And this passage confirms it. Before we read it, I want to set this up for you, because it will resonate with you. It resonates with me, I know it will with you as well. The reason God says the words we're going to read in just a few minutes. Isaiah chapters 40 and 41, 
is God himself speaking through the prophet Isaiah to the people of God who are in exile in Babylon. And times have changed. The circumstances have shifted. And a king in Persia has arisen, a man named Cyrus. And Cyrus and his armies have started coming across the landscape of the Middle East, conquering country and people after country and people. And they are moving in the direction of Babylon and ultimately in the direction of Judah, where the Israelites are from. As this crisis unfolds, all the people of the Middle East are terrified. All the nations around them, even the people in Babylon, they're terrified of Cyrus the Persian and the armies that are moving and his power as he conquers nation after nation. So all the people, along with the Israelites, are frightened, but all the people but the Israelites, here's how how they respond. They start making new gods out of wood, clay, and metal. They start forging golden idols. They start carving wooden idols. And they start setting them in their homes. And they start pleading to these idols, help us, help us, help us. Because their fear is that their gods, their false gods, would have abandoned them. And Cyrus is on the march because their gods have left them. And God spends two chapters through the prophet Isaiah reminding the Israelites, I'm not one of those gods. I'm the God. And I don't leave you. I don't forsake you. In fact, when we we worship false idols of any kind, that's godless worship. And, And people who do not know Christ as their Savior default to crying out to godless idols. If I make more money... Everything will be okay. If the politicians would just make the right decisions, everything will be okay. If the educational institutions would give out more degrees, everything will be okay. If I buy more stuff, have a bigger house, marry the right person, everything will be okay. And yet those gods keep failing us, don't they? Time after time. The question that we're confronted with in chapters 40 and 41 of the book of Isaiah we're confronted with throughout the Bible, and Jesus does it explicitly, especially in the Sermon on Mount. The question is, if you believe in the living God, what difference does it make? See, if a crisis unfolds and you respond like everyone else in the culture responds, and yet you say, you believe in the living God, and yet you say, I follow Christ, but you're responding like everyone does who doesn't know Christ, what difference does your faith make? Shouldn't there be a difference for those who know Christ as their Savior, who follow the living God, who cry out to a living God in times of crisis? Shouldn't there be a difference? Yes, absolutely. And yet we default to the same response as the godless world around us. And that's what God is correcting in this passage. Along with that, by the way, one of the reasons the Israelites were so afraid was they were afraid that God had rejected them. That's why they were in Babylon in the first place. They had sinned against the God, and the history record shows that God tells them, you would go off into exile because you had sinned against God. And for a time, they were in a disciplinary position in exile. But they misinterpreted that. See, they interpreted that to mean that God had outright rejected them. He had abandoned them, that he would never be with them any longer. So they must be reminded again that even though sometimes... We make a mess of our lives. We sin against God. When we ask for forgiveness, God is always with us. God is always with us. 
He never abandons us. He never forsakes us. We're going to pick up in chapter 41 of the book of Isaiah and read starting at verse 8. Just a few verses. Isaiah chapter 41 and verse 8. God says through Isaiah, But you, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, descendant of Abraham, my friend, I brought you from the ends of the earth and called you from its farthest corners. I said to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you. I haven't rejected you. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be afraid, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will hold on to you with my righteous right hand. What a contrast to the godless generations around them, the godless nations around them, the people carving idols out of wood and stone. God says, no, I am your God. I am your God. You don't need to be afraid. I'm the one true living God. I want to go back to verse 8 and, and lay a foundation for what we're going to look at in the truth of this scripture because it starts with the relationship that God has with his people. He reminds them of that relationship. Israel, you are my servant. He uses the term Israel as their nationality. Israel, you are my servant. Jacob, I have a personal relationship with you. I know you by name. I have chosen you, the descendant of Abraham, my friend. Nothing's changed in this relationship, God says. And I called you. I picked you out. You're not like the nations from the start. I have a relationship with you. The foundation of God's promise of his presence is that relationship you have in Jesus Christ. When God saved you from your sin, when you trusted Christ as your Savior, God saved you from your sin. He brought you into the family of God and that will not change. Sure, sometimes you're disobedient, but cry out to God. You'll find he's there, faithful and righteous to forgive you. But he has a relationship with you. If you ever wonder too, God, why do you care about me? What a mess I've made of my life. If you ever sin in such a way that you wonder, could God ever call me back? Let these words echo in your mind. I have chosen you in Christ. I called you out and you responded. God just wants you to come back. God pursues you. His goodness pursues you at all times. It starts with that relationship and that, that presence and that promise. And you're reminded of that promise of his relationship. Every time you go to the word of God, every time you're in the Bible, you're reminded of the presence of God and his promise in Christ to never leave you, to never forsake you. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and they answer. They, they follow me because they know me. And he said, no one can snatch them out of my hands. Based on that relationship, see what God says? Verse 10, do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be afraid, for I am your God. Do not fear, for I am with you. Don't let fear overwhelm you, the phrase means, for I'm with you. Everybody else, they're carving out idols. Uh, they're counting on other measures to save them. You don't have to be afraid. You don't need to fear because I'm with you. Now, the next phrase is a little bit different. Do not be afraid, for I am your God. The, phrase, uh, the word translated by the phrase, do not be afraid, literally means do not look around anxiously. Don't look at every problem in the world and go, I'm afraid, I'm afraid, I'm afraid. Because the problems tend to stack up, and if you're looking around anxiously, your anxiety grows. You've got a lot to be anxious about if you look around, don't you? The pandemic, crisis at the southern border, supply chain problems. The list could go on and on, and that's not even to count your own household problems, right? Your own health conditions, right? Look around anxiously, and you know what's going to happen? You're going to be anxious. 
Look around in fear. You know what's going to happen? You're going to be afraid. God says, don't do that. Stop looking around and start looking at your God, the God who is with you. I have not left you, he says. I am your God. I chose you. That hasn't changed. Oh, there's a lot to be afraid of if you keep looking around. I want to encourage you this morning to start looking at your God. Get into his word. Know him well. If you are battered by the storms right now, if you're struggling with personal crises, or maybe you're just scared to death of what's going on in our culture, all of those have the same answer. I am your God. Don't be afraid. I'm with you, God says. I want to pull out of verse 10 a few ways that God is with us in our crisis because he is our God. He is our God. This is is necessary. It's specific. It's essential to remember that unlike the world who doesn't know God, you do. And in Christ, you have a relationship with him. So he says, here's what you can count on. In a time of crisis, you can count on this. First of all, your God strengthens you. That's what Isaiah says. He says, I will strengthen you. Not hard to see that. You know what that term means? It means he strengthens you. Not really anything to elaborate about that. What it implies, though, is you feel weak. You're worn out. You're weary. You're battered down and you're broken. And when you look out at the world, it gets even worse. You feel stress and strain because you can't control circumstances that are impacting your life personally. So God says, I will strengthen you. And it also means... If you're drawing on your own effort at strength, that's not going to work very well. You're still feeling worn out, aren't you? <laughs> but he says, I will strengthen you. So you, you draw on God's strength. You know that he's with you. He will strengthen you. This is a key theme, again, throughout the Bible, but also in the book of Isaiah, that God will strengthen you. It's, it's his presence and it's his promises. And when you go to the word of God, you are strengthened by those promises. You're reminded that he is with you. Earlier in Isaiah chapter 40, in verse 28, we have one of the best known passages in all of the Bible. Listen to this. God says, do you not know, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the whole earth. He never becomes faint or weary. There is no limit to his understanding. He gives strength to the faint and strengthens the powerless. Youths may become faint and weary and young men stumble and fall. But those who trust in the Lord will renew their strength and they will soar on wings like eagles, will not run, excuse me, they will run and not become weary. They will walk and not grow faint. Your strength is in him. And he tells you this, think about this. God never gets weak. God never gets tired. God never gets weary. The Bible says God never sleeps, never slumbers. When you're exhausted, when you're sound asleep, God's still awake. He's still taking care of you. He hasn't left you. So in a time of crisis, here's the difference. What makes your God different? Your God personally strengthens you when you call upon him for help and for strength. And that leads me to the second thing. Your God helps you. We've been saying that over and over, but the text says it explicitly. I will help you, God says. Uh, Strengthening you has to do with the fact of, of, of whether you're weak or not. You draw on the strength of God because you are weak and you are worried and you are strained and you are stressed. 
But when God says, I will help you, he means that all the time. It doesn't matter whether you're tired or not. Call upon God. You can know that God will help you. This particular word is a very general word, but it wraps up a lot of the theme of Scripture that God is your advocate, your comforter, and your helper in times of need. This particular word can mean he wants to know how to be of service to you, to help take care of you. But he already knows what you need, the Bible teaches. See, when we, when we pray, we typically think of prayer along the lines of informing God of our problems. God must not have any idea what it is that's going on in my life and, and how worn out I am from all these problems and how frightened I am of the crisis. So I've got to come to God in prayer and I've got to tell him what's going on. But see, God already knows what's going on and God's already promised you he would help. What God wants you to do in prayer is partner with him in getting the project done. He wants you to know he's there. He wants you to cry out to him so he can speak to you, so he can strengthen you, so he can help you, so he can soothe your heart, so he can show you in his word what you need to do. Uh, this idea throughout scripture in the New Testament often is translated as advocate or comforter. The Apostle Paul says uh, God is our comforter. God of the Father is our comforter. Here and in, in, in the book of John, Jesus calls the Holy Spirit our advocate or comforter. And it's the same word translated each time, and it's the same idea here. It means that God is our walk-alongside God. He's our walk-alongside God. It's a very literal word in the New Testament Greek. He's the helper that comes alongside you, spends time with you, stays with you. He's personal. He's involved. And he is always there as your helper. You say, well, well, why doesn't God help me now? Well, the obvious question is, are you asking him? Are you in his word? Because when you need wisdom, God helps you. He gives you wisdom. Book of James says that. When you need confidence and courage, God helps you. He gives you confidence and courage in him. In the moment, we've already seen, when you need strength, God helps you. He gives you that strength. When you need provision, we saw that two weeks ago, God helps you. He provides for you. Prayer and the Word of God are reminders of His help. Interacting with Him, partnering with Him, believing Him, trusting Him. But when you are afraid and you're not going to God and seeking that help, uh, it cries out in your own heart, it says in your own heart that, that you'd rather be afraid than have faith. Now let that faith in His help replace that fear. And God will be there. And God will help you. Your God, unlike the the gods of this world, your God strengthens you. Unlike the gods of, the, of a godless world, your God helps you. He's personal. He walks alongside you. He meets you where you are and he takes care of you. And then last, unlike the world around us, your God upholds you. Your God upholds you. We read it this morning as holds on to you. And that's what God says. I will hold on to you. It's a very vivid word. It means God has a grip on you and will not let go. But just in case the Israelites or us centuries later wonder if, if, if that promise is always going to hold true or, or maybe if, if we've, if we're, uh, if we've uh, disobeyed God, if God just gives us his second best. Maybe we can't always count on him. We wonder these kinds of things. And what does God mean when he says, I will always hold on to you? He adds to that the way he holds on to you, with my righteous right hand. In the ancient world, 
in a biblical culture, the right side was the strong side. The right side was the strong side. And the right side was the righteous side. See, when God says, I'll hold on to you with my righteous right hand, what God is saying is, I'm always giving you my A game. You've always got the strongest grip of God on you. So you can't wander away so far that that God's going to forget you or let go of you or abandon you. And sometimes when you don't feel like you've got a grip on God, you can always know God has a grip on you. God's not let go of you. He's still holding fast and holding tight. Say, how do you know that, Pastor Bob? Well, I know it because it's a promise. And it's a promise in God's Word. That same Word of God you need to be going to to digest those promises, to be strengthened and to be helped and to remember God holds on to you. He upholds you in that crisis and in that time of need. And he never lets go of you. God never says at any time, well, you know, she hasn't been at her best. She hasn't been in Bible study. She hasn't been faithful to me. She hasn't been at her best. And she's really made a mess of this, so she's going to get my B game. I'll hold on to her with my left hand, and who knows, I might let go. He's not really a worthy walker of Christ. He hasn't been in church very often. He's been making excuses for not getting into the Bible, so he's not going to get my A game. I'm going to hang on to him with my left side, and who knows, that might weaken just a bit. No, no, no. And I love this image too because it's a picture of God holding on to you with that right hand, that righteousness, the great power of God and fending off your opponents on the other side. Ah, you got to love that. Your God says, stop looking around anxiously. Stop worrying about what's going on. Stop. Start looking at your God who is always with you, never forsakes you. He will strengthen you. He will help you. Are you asking him? Do you believe him? In the moment, right now, he will help you. And he will always hold on to you. In 1977, Rick Hoyt came home from school, and he asked his dad, Dick Hoyt, if he would run a marathon with him. Rick said that one of his classmates had been injured in a lacrosse accident, and they were going to do a marathon run as a fundraiser. And Rick asked his dad, would you you run in this marathon with me? And his dad said, sure, even though he'd never run a marathon before. So in the next few weeks, while Rick was at school, Dick trained for the marathon. Now, Dick was ex-army uh, an army reserve, so it wasn't too, too hard to know, you know what to do and, and to get, get in shape and get trained. And so they ran that marathon together, and as son and dad, they had a great time doing it. So they made a pledge to each other to run endurance races. And from 1977 to 2016, Dick and Rick Hoyt, father and son, participated in over 1,100 endurance races together. Boston Marathon, triathlon, uh, Ironman events, together. They participated in these things together. Dick Hoyt, the dad, passed away last year. Now, if you know that story, you know I'm leaving a little, little part out. You see, Rick Hoyt, the son, has cerebral palsy. When he came home from school that day, 
The reason he wanted his dad to run with him is because he could not do it by himself. And he wanted his friend in the lacrosse accident to know that even with disabilities, you can do great things. That 1977 run happened because the way that Dick Hoyt trained was he modified a wheelchair so that he could push it and run at the same time. He put bags of cement in the wheelchair while his son was at school, and he ran with those bags of cement until he was in good enough shape to run a marathon pushing his son Rick in that wheelchair. It went so well, the rest is history. And Team Hoyt, as they were called, became famous every time they showed up. Well, how did he do a triathlon? How did he do other events? Dick Hoyt modified a boat so his son could sit in the boat and he could swim while pushing his son in that boat. He modified a bicycle so his son could sit in the front of the bicycle so he could race with his son who loved the wind while they raced in triathlons, marathons in the wheelchair. Because that's what fathers do. That's what fathers do. They never let go. They give you strength. They're there to help when you ask in your time of need. And that's why your God reminds you he has a relationship with you. He's committed to that relationship even sometimes when you're not. Did you know that? That's why when you've drifted from him, he makes you miserable. That's why when you've turned your back on him, he keeps calling you home. That's why he loves you, never leaves you, never forsakes you. He always strengthens you, always helps you, and always upholds you, no matter what. Whatever you're facing, whatever problem you have in your life, have you asked him for his help? Have you drawn on his strength? Have you been alone at home and called out to your God, knowing that he is there? And when you look out of the world outside and you, and you get anxious and concerned, have you turned back to him and say, you are my God. You're the real living God. I don't need to be afraid. God has this well in hand. Do you trust him? Do you believe him? Bow your heads and close your eyes. Bow your heads and close your eyes. Nobody looking around. I want to ask you a question this morning. No one looking around. I'm going to pray for us in just a moment. But I'm going to ask you this question first. Personally, are you in the middle of a crisis? You're in the middle of a trouble. You're in the middle of a problem. And today you would say, God, help me. Give me strength. Remind me you are there. Today you would say, I give this to you, God. I trust you. If that's you, just lift your hand up where you are. Nobody looking around. Nobody looking around. Good, good. Put your hands down. Our Heavenly Father, you know our hearts. You know our struggles, you know our problems, you know our failures and our mistakes. And yet, God, you love us. I don't even know how to capture that, how to get my mind around it. You love us that much. You never leave us. You never forsake us. God, how I pray for each one of us in this room, each one who held their hand up, here and at home, God, each one that would say, God, help me today. God, strengthen me today. God, hold on to me today. God, we give you that. We, we, we give you our problem. We give you our crisis. We give you our worry. And God, we believe you today again. God, you will help us, strengthen us, be with us in this time because you are our God. And God, for those of us who are afraid, Father, take that fear away. Remind us 
that we trust you, a living God, the living God. And in Christ, you never leave us or abandon us, God. And Father, we're all worried about the world around us. We're worried. We're concerned. We're anxious when we look outside these walls, God. But then, God, we remember that you are our God. We remember you're in charge of history. We remember you are living and powerful, and you are our God. So, Father, we trust you today. For whatever comes next, God, we trust you. You have not changed. The world might be falling apart, but, God, you have not changed. Father, forgive us. Forgive us for letting the world or the crises of this world or even the crises of our own lives dictate what we think about you. Forgive us, God, for behaving like the world around us when faced with those same problems. Father, forgive us for that, and today we renew our faith in you. And we praise you, God, in advance for the help and the strength that you give us today. Father, there's some maybe in this room, some at home, that have never trusted Jesus Christ as their Lord and their Savior. They don't have that relationship with you. They find themselves investing themselves in, in the gods of this world instead of trusting you. Father, I pray for them today that they would turn their lives over to Jesus Christ. Trust Him as their Savior. Trust you, God, to come into their lives. And with them, by faith, God, I pray this prayer. And, and I pray, God, for them, you would quicken their heart to pray this prayer and trust Christ today. Dear Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. I know I am. I know I've tried to be good. I've been religious, but I've not changed. I know that I'm a sinner. And I know that I can't save myself. Jesus, I believe you died on the cross for me. And I believe you're alive today. So Jesus, I ask in faith you would come into my heart, into my life. Forgive me of my sins. I repent of that sin. God, I turn away from that sin. And I ask God you would come into my life today to forgive me and save me. Heavenly Father, there might be believers in this room or at home that also need to recommit their lives to Christ today. And maybe a long time ago, they trusted Christ as their Savior and they know it. They know they did. So Father, I would pray with them today, dear Lord Jesus, forgive me. Forgive me, God, for going my own way. Forgive me for the sin that's in my life. Forgive me, Father, for forgetting about your love for me. And today, Father, I recommit my life to following Christ. A fresh start with Jesus Christ today. Father, I thank you, God, for hearing our prayers in Christ. I thank you for the promises you give us, knowing you're always faithful to us. I thank you, God, for taking away our fears. And I thank you, God, most of all, for helping us in our time of need. And it's in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Amen.